I can't believe you're here. This is great to give yourself to the, the preaching of the word and to the life of a, of a church community is a massive grace to you. And I hope that you feel that with us. In our worship service, one of the things that we do is preach hard at you. Uh, Jesus was this way. He was a preacher teacher. His apostles were this way. It's a chance for the whole church to hear from a sinful instrument the words of God. It's kind of like eating a meal together week after week. You may not remember every meal that you ate, but you know that you were healthy and strong because you were eating. And I get the call this morning to minister the word to you. We're preaching through something that we're calling Seven Mile Road, a field guide. It's a season where a lot of the church planting that we have done is really hitting traction. And so we're trying to capture with you and for the benefit of our bigger family, what does it mean to be Jesus's people together on mission? What are the marks of living this way together? For some of you, this will be a reintroduction to the things that you love about our church family. For some of you, this will be an introduction. And so I'm hoping to serve you well in that way. We're also writing all of these things down. So each of the chapter, each of the sermons that we're preaching over these four months are also chapters in an actual field guide that we're going to publish for you and for our churches to say, here's who we are and why. Every chapter is set up beginning with theological vision. That's primarily what I get to preach to you and to your heart. And then tons of practical X's and O's on, if this is what we're convinced about, how do we go live that? If you find yourself at the end of some of these sermons moved by the gospel truth and saying, can you give me some more details on how I go do that? Even if we don't get to all of them in the sermon They'll all be written down and given to you at some point, hopefully in the summer. But I want to take my time primarily to preach to your heart a vision of God, theological vision. Because if we can get your heart, the X's and the O's will follow. If we're just trying to do the X's and the O's and our heart is not captured by the, the beauty and the truth and the goodness of God, then we're just doing religion. And that's not why we're here. So allow me to preach at your heart. Let's pray together. Father, meet us through the preaching of the word. Capture our hearts, and then everything will follow. If you don't move by your spirit, this is just puffs of air. But if you do, you could actually bind the hearts of a people together around your mission, and there would be much joy there. So I pray for clarity, forcefulness, truth, helpfulness in the words this morning. Hear my prayer for that and answer, I pray. Amen. All right, the whole field guide is just a summary of a whole bunch of statements like this, big ideas that we're committed to. Here's one that you've heard before. We are going to have no rock stars but Jesus in the life of our church. We're committed to working toward no rock stars except for Jesus. All right, let me start here. Broadway lights and pyramid schemes. I was actually born in Staten Island, New York. If you hear this weird Northeast accent, sometimes it's New Yorkish and sometimes it's Boston, which one is going on? That's why my early childhood was on the streets of Staten Island. 
Now, when I say streets of Staten Island, I mean streets like Malden or Everett or Melrose, nothing crazy. Staten Island is the fifth borough of the five. It's where they put the dump. So it is the stepchild of New York City. We spent a lot of time in Staten Island, only a little bit of time in Manhattan, but we were close. I distinctly remember the first two times that I was taken into Manhattan, both stories. One was to see Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know about that Broadway play? You know, when you're a kid and you do something like that, there's just these memories seared in your mind. I remember staring at a new skyscraper that was being built, and I was amazed at the size of the footing and that it was so deep down there, peering through that fence. Uh, My mother got pickpocketed this night because we were watching a magic show before the play, and James got selected to be in it. And I think, you know, they were scheming, whatever kid we choose, you go steal their parents' stuff, because they will be oblivious to what's going on. They're just watching that their kid doesn't disappear under the black cloth. Gone. Thankfully, not the tickets to the play, but wallet gone. Uh, I remember there was an intermission and eating the biggest box of Skittles that I had ever eaten in my life halfway through the play. And then I remember, seared in my mind, the facade of the theater and the big, giant, bright lights. These were especially big because of the rainbow theme that went along with the play. And I remember the names of the actors and the actresses. And even as a little kid who thought very highly of himself, I just remember thinking, this is better than Staten Island. This is awesome. I would love my name up in those lights. Second time I was in New York City was Madison Square Garden, the the basketball arena on 7th Avenue. We weren't there for a Knicks game, to my dismay. We were there for WWF wrestling. So now you know a little bit about the family that I grew up in. This was when Hulk Hogan was just becoming the heavyweight champion of the world for the first time. Fun fact, I was there the night he won the belt, literally. If you go on YouTube and watch Hulk Hogan versus Iron Sheik, in the seventh row is me and my brother and my cousin standing on the top of the chairs. Seven, eight-year-old me. I distinctly remember the facade of Madison Square Garden. It's still there on 7th Avenue. This huge, bright display. And it listed out the, the names of the guys on the Knicks. At that time, Bernard King, Marvin Webster, Rory Sparrow. It was a bad early 80s Knicks team. And I remember standing in front of this thing, looking up as an aspiring athlete and thinking, I would love, that would be so awesome. Matthew Cruz, my name up in those lights. It never panned out for me with acting or singing probably because of the accent. Also, do you know what harmony is? Because I could never figure out harmony, which ended my Broadway potential career. Obviously, it never worked out for being in the NBA. But in my case, I have become a pastor of a church 
and people are constantly doing what you're doing right now, staring at me and listening to me talk, and not just this setting, but all kinds of settings. And that temptation is huge still in my heart. And I would love it if my name was somewhere up in lights, wherever that might be. If you spend time with me eavesdropping on prayer on the most frustrating of days and the days when I'm just aware of my sinfulness the most and I'm just going to be honest with the Father, here's what some of those confessions sound like. Some of these are written in a journal. I want to pastor a bigger church. There is so much wrong with that statement. I mean, even saying it, we could spend the rest of the day tearing that apart. But I've prayed that before. I want to be known as the guy who planted a successful church in a zip code where that never happens. Nobody else could do that but you. I want to be able to tell stories about how we outgrew this space and then we outgrew that space and then we outgrew a third space and now we're on our fifth space because wow. I want to be the subject of this sentence because I've heard it said before. Blank is the fastest growing church in New England. And then I want to tweet it Then I want to retweet my own tweet. You know how that works? Then I want to like my retweet of my first tweet, and I want to go back and like my first tweet. And then I want to take that quote, and I want to put it superimposed over a picture of a massively crowded Seven Mile Road church service. And the picture's not of me, but of course I'm in there somewhere because they're all looking at me. I'm desperate for my preaching to hit some top 10 podcast list somewhere for anything. I don't even care if it's just pastors with the worst accents. Number seven, Seven Mile Road. I want to be on panels where they say, can you tell us how you've been so successful at what you're doing? See, I already have my reply ready. It's going to be either, well, it's all about Jesus. Or it's going to be this one. It's very cute. I'm just a nobody who wants to tell everybody about somebody. Only when I say it, I'm going to smile just right in case any cameras are taking pictures at that exact time so that I look good on the panel. Can I take you to a really dark place with this? I have had daydreams of an angry person coming in here with a shotgun in the middle of this thing and coming up to the front and like, I'm going to kill you for your whatever. And then before anyone knows what happens, I'm going to take the gun out of his hand and I'm going to reverse his arm around and I'm going to put him down on the ground here and I'm going to hand Lori the gun. And then the news is going to get out and there's going to be a headline in the Melrose Free Press and the, the Boston Globe. Bad ASS pastor disarms assailant and finishes sermon. (laughs) 
and I'll give him one of my smiley photo ops, and then I will walk down the streets of greater Boston as the bad ASS pastor who disarmed assailant and then kept preaching Jesus. I desperately want the world to know that I am somebody. I want my name in lights. Now, the reason nobody's looking at me crazy right now is because this is true for everybody in the room. We are all concerned with how we look. We are all concerned with how we appear. Even if it's the tiniest circle, we want to be known as somebody. You all know this to be true. If you are ever in a group picture that got taken and then someone shows you the picture, what's the first thing that you look for? Where am I and how do I look? We all love for our names to be up in some lights somewhere. But then we come to the beautiful pages of Scripture. And as you read those words, you realize it can't work that way. There is only room in the life of a church, actually in the life of the universe, for one name to be blazed in glorious lights. And it's not mine, and it's not yours. It's the name of Jesus. This means that the true pursuit of every sinner who has been saved by grace, no matter how gifted, no matter how ambitious, no matter how blessed by God, ceases to be. It's got to be my name up in the lights and begins to be. It's got to be Jesus's name up in the lights. This is why we strongly reject the pyramid scheme church culture that has become very commonplace in the United States of America, also in Africa, also in South America. I don't know if you've been around these kind of churches, but this is how the pyramid scheme works. At the top of the church culture is a rock star pastor and his rock star wife. And everybody else is on this upward climb to get to where they have arrived. 99 out of 100 times, you can't get there. And so you settle on living vicariously through the fame and the popularity and the lights of your pastor. Everything hinges on and depends on and flows down from the names at the top. There's a recipe that we have to start cooking if that's the kind of culture we're going to have. This is what it looks like. The rock star and his wife need to look great all the time. They need to sound great all the time. They need to present great all the time. They need to be witty. They need to stay thin. They need to be very likable. They need to keep it all together. It is crucial in this recipe that they live in the nicest house, on the nicest street, in the nicest zip code close enough to the church and have the nicest looking kids crucial. They have to find a way to give the impression that they're never weak, that they barely ever sin. There's a little list of sins that are 
confessible like speeding. The sign out in front of the church cannot just list the name of the church. It must have the name of the pastor on the sign. The first page of the website cannot just be a picture of the people of the church or the city that the church is sent to. It has to be a Hollywood portrait of the people at the top of the pyramid. Has to be. That's the recipe. I'm sure you've seen it before. The worst thing is, is that we bake that cake unapologetically. We work that recipe on purpose. We feel like if the rock stars ascend high, then the people will ascend high with them. And so there is this weird, perverse thing that happens in a pyramid scheme where celebrity culture is not renounced, but it's embraced, eyes wide open. Vanity gets baptized. Self-promotion gets sanctified. Building a brand and keeping that brand rolling becomes the engine for church growth and disciple-making. You remember Gordon Gekko, Wall Street, shouting, greed is good. What was underneath that statement? The richer that I get, all the other boats will float up with me. And so greed is actually a good pursuit of mine because everyone will be helped. Prosperity gospel churches, you just replace greed with vanity and you've got it. No, no, vanity is good. Or this is a sanctified form of vanity. Lifting up our superstars so that all the boats may rise with them. And I don't just mean televangelistic-y preachers. I mean all of us. Every church can build a pyramid. Lights and pyramids. Let me give an example of what this would look like for us in our own network. We're in a church planting network called Acts 29. It's a play on, there's only eight, 28 chapters in the book of Acts, but we're still going for the glory of Jesus and the advance of his gospel. It is impossible to state how blessed we have been from our connection with this church planting network. The theology, the missiology, the relationships, the training uh, 10 years ago were crucial for us moving to help health. A door would take a bullet for the men and the women in this network. Back in 2010, when A29 was hitting the height and the heyday of its popularity and its fame, uh, really worldwide, definitely nationwide, uh, even in a completely unchurched culture like ours here, people were talking about Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill and Matt Chandler and the village, and they were on the map of Christendom. I was on the team that was planning the Northeast Regional Conference for the year for A29. And I was asked what I thought should be the theme of the conference. 
I said, we need to do a conference on the church planter's soul, and we need to address two things. They're the twin sins that I felt were a grave danger for myself and for this movement that was becoming very known and popular. I said, we need to talk about vanity and envy. I said that because as you grow in popularity, whenever that happens, it's inevitable. A celebrity culture can creep in. Somebody's name has to be in lights. Somebody's got to headline the conferences. Somebody has to be the one that the network is known through. Somebody ends up at the top of a pyramid. I knew it was coming. We knew it was coming. And I wanted to address it for the good of our people and the good of our pastors. The two sins that always accompany a move toward a pyramid scheme or celebrity culture are vanity and envy. Some of the pastors get elevated. Everybody else gets frustrated that it wasn't them. Those two sins cover celebrity culture. We were young, restless, and reformed. This was a good thing, but when you're young, you're proud. You think very highly of yourself. Vanity was a danger because immaturity was a mark of our network and our church. We were also just a bunch of entrepreneurs who were dissatisfied with the status quo of church and wanted to see their friends and neighbors given a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus in the vernacular. We wanted to make a name for Jesus. There's no question about it. But very quickly, a name for yourself can get mixed in. We had a brand identity, and there was a sense in which we didn't really mind that at all. Let me give you some specifics, and I'm confessing my own sin in all of this. I think you know that already. We really cared what we looked like. I mean, that really mattered. We cared how we presented. It was becoming very crucial in the culture of the network that you were cool, and cool was defined by, I don't even know if this stuff is still cool, but here we go. This was 2010. Tattoos, lots of facial hair, all the possible ways of growing stuff on your face either flannel shirts or affliction t-shirts. It was one of the two. That's all you were allowed to wear. Uh, Black-rimmed glasses at the time. Angel's got them on. I knew I'd be staring at somebody with black-rimmed glasses. Jeremy's got them on. Okay, you can have black-rimmed glasses on and not necessarily be vain this morning. We love talking about how we drank beer and smoked cigars. I saw an Acts 29 pastor's website where he had about 50 thumbnails of his latest 50 sermons. A different shirt in every single one. 50 times real attention was given to, what am I wearing today? How am I going to look? The darkest moment for me came, and let me be very careful here, This is attested by two or three witnesses, so I'm not gossiping. Also, I do believe that the pastor who got to this place and said these words would stand right with me and say, 
it is horrible that I said these words and I would take them back and I was in a dark place. But it got to a place where there was an Acts 29 pastor in a meeting with his elders talking about the growth of the church and he yelled these words at his staff right here. I am the brand. I am the brand. This is why I said, can we please talk about vanity in the life of our network? All of us tend in these directions. If we can, we'll put our names in lights. If we can, we will happily sit at the top of the pyramid. Who wouldn't love to be the celebrity around which a massively influential brand revolves? This is why the words of Acts 20 have become precious to us, have become oxygen to us, have become beautiful to us. Here's why. When Jesus' Apostle Paul is speaking to a church just like us and her leaders that he had planted, and he begins to rewind for them what his ministry looked like among them, this is how he presented. This is Acts 20, verse 19. He says, You yourselves know how I lived among you from the first day that I landed in your city, serving the Lord, And then he drops these three beautiful words. They have to sit at the center of the culture of our church. Here they are. With all humility. Does everyone feel this? His first descriptor. Not with all eloquence. Not with all physical fitness. Not with all prominence and influence and status. Whatever the opposite of vanity is, that's the word that he goes for. You know that my way among you was with humility. I was low among you. When I arrived to make disciples in your city, I was a nobody. I hung out with you down at the bottom of the pyramid. This is his self-understanding of what makes for a faithful gospel minister, a healthy gospel church, all humility. If we do a survey of the titles that Paul took for himself, all of them drive low and not high. They drive low and not high. Work through some of these with me. Here is one. He says, I am the chief of sinners. That's who I am. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. I am the foremost. If we did a police lineup of everybody in Seven Mile Road Church, all of us, oldest to youngest, just a giant police lineup, huge. And then we pulled you out of the lineup and we walked you with, you know, the detectives from CSI and 
law and order SUV and you were standing back there with them and now you were looking through the glass windows. And they said, okay, here's the lineup of everyone at Seven Mile Road. We need you to point to the worst sinner in the church. Who is it? Who would you point to? How long would it take you? What category in your mind do you have for, hey, I love this church. I love these people. There's a couple of people that are just really, and then whatever you think the worst sins are, they fit those sins. So you would say, can we just get it down to like six or seven and then I'll choose? Maybe that's how you do it. Who would you point to if you were asked that question? Every faithful disciple maker and gospel minister needs to know in their bones what they would do in that moment. Without hesitation, immediately, no questions asked, they would say, the worst sinner in the life of this church is not in that lineup. You've already pulled them out of that lineup. I'm on the wrong side of the glass. This was his self-understanding of who he was. This was how he presented I am the foremost and the worst of sinners. He goes on to say, Jesus did this so that he might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The whole reason that I get to lead you is because Jesus said, I'm going to take the worst liar and the worst pervert and the laziest sloth and the angriest father, and the most entitled, self-interested person in the church, and I'm going to make him holy. That's who I am, the chief sinner of Seven Mile Road. Vanity says, I am the brand. Humility says, I'm the chief of sinners. Here's the second one, self-understanding. I am the least of the apostles. In 1 Corinthians, where Paul is defending the historicity of the gospel, Jesus really lived a perfect life. He really died an atoning death. He really rose from the dead. Nobody saw that coming, but he did. Then he starts to list off all the people who saw the risen Christ. Boom, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. He lists them all off, hundreds of people. And then he gives us these beautiful words, he says. And then, last of all, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy even to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. If you know your Bible, you know that Paul could have made the defense that he was the best of the apostles, who was the most well-trained apostle theologically. Definitely Paul, who came from the best breed of family in the Roman Empire. Paul of Tarsus, right? Roman citizen, who had the most success volume-wise in their church planting work. Totally Paul and his team, who endured the most suffering for Jesus. No question it was Paul. But what does he say? Does he say, I am the best of the apostles? Top of the pyramid. He says, I am the least of the apostles. Two analogies, football analogy. You know who Mr. Irrelevant is? 
He's whoever the guy is who gets drafted last. Seven rounds, 30-something teams, the last name called at the bottom. He is Mr. Irrelevant. And it's like cool when he actually makes an NFL team. He begins his career knowing I was at the bottom. All right, Hollywood analogy, if the NFL is not your thing. You ever watch a horror movie and you know everyone's dying in this movie? But about five minutes in, you know who's dying first. It's like the guy that's like not so rock star looking or, and you're going, okay, he's going to be the first one to go. He's totally dispensable. He'll be gone before the first half hour. That's Paul's understanding. I'm, I'm like the dispensable one. I'm the least of the apostles. Vanity says, I am the brand. Humility says, I'm, I'm the least of the apostles. Third one, I am a servant. There was pyramid scheme rivalry in the church at Corinth. People would literally put on jerseys and wear them to church that said, I belong to Apollos. I belong to Paul. I belong to Peter. Then like the wicked holy people did their own jersey and it said, I belong to Jesus. I'm just on his team. And Paul came into that church culture and he said, this is ridiculous and it needs to stop. And he says these words, what is Apollos? What is Paul? And then he goes for the lowest word that existed in his dictionary at the time. The most common, mundane, nothing of a word. And he says, servants. That's who we are. If there's a pyramid, we are at the bottom of that thing. Now, I know how I would have answered that question, right? What is Apollos? What is Paul? Rock stars, superstars, MVP, most valuable pastors, unusually gifted men who are leading this thing forward. That's who they are. He goes for the word that's used a thousand other times in your Bible. Servant. This is the person who would greet you at the door to wash your feet. The first job that I ever had was a custodian of a daycare. You know how they say that if you see some things that you can never unsee? I smelled some stuff that I can never (laughs) unsmell. Oh, Paul says, I'm like the guy who cleans up after the toddlers. That's my identity. Vanity says, I am the brand. Humility says, I am a servant. Last one, jar of clay. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is stretching the boundaries of language to talk about the glory of Christ. And then he juxtaposes that with talking about the ministers of Christ. So he's put Christ in the highest possible place of glory, the image of the invisible God, the face of Christ. And now he begins to address Christ's ministers, and here's how he says it. We have this treasure, God and the gospel of Jesus, and we have this treasure coming to you, being announced to you in jars of clay. 
clay pots. It's like a cereal bowl. Ordinary, mundane, easily breakable, like not the point. Anybody get excited about the cereal bowls in their cabinet? You just go through them like crazy, right? Totally replaceable. Family of six, we have dozens of those things. Paul says, that's what I'm like. Anybody in here ever gone to your favorite restaurant? So I don't know what it is. Santapio's, Cheesecake Factory, Tupelo's. Does that get me on your list of a cooler restaurant? Ever gone there and eaten a, just a wicked, crazy good meal? I mean, Clint would approve of this meal. That's how good this was. Did you ever get in your car on the way home and say to the other people in your car, wow, those plates, though. Did you see the bowl that salad came in? That's silverware. When you foodies take a picture of your food, and I know you do this because I follow you on Instagram. When do you take that picture? You take it when the food is on there. Look at it. Oh, wow, the colors and the texture. Oh. Has anybody ever tweeted a picture of the empty plate? Man, look at this dish. Tupelo has some serious Tupperware. Then why do we want our names? In lights, it doesn't make any sense. I'm only going to get through theological vision today, so let me end with this. We do church close to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. It's a huge blessing. We get to invest in the lives of lots of men and women who are seeking to make much of Jesus with their life. And we've had church planters and pastors of you and me and us come through that place. But there is a downside to living close to that seminary, one of which is that I am constantly getting phone calls. Will you do an interview with me? I got to interview a church planner. I got to interview a pastor. I got I to gotta do this for my class. That's always constantly happening to me. Brief conversation, they tell me. So a couple of months ago, it was summer, I was up in my treehouse hiding from everyone else doing some work, and I got a call from someone I had promised to do an interview with. And she's asking me all these questions, and they were great. And she kept going, one more question. Oh, one more question. One more question. We got down to the final, final question. And this was what she asked me. She said, who do you consider are the top church planters in the New England area? She said, who do you consider are the top church planters in the New England area? And in my head, I went, who cares? But I didn't know if she had written the, the questions that I, I don't want to make her feel bad about what she thought was her great last question. And I paused, and this verse came to my mind and my heart, and I said, best church planters in the Boston area. I said... Jesus, and then just a bunch of jars of clay. Jesus, and then just a bunch of jars of clay. 
Vanity says, I am the brand. Humility says, I'm, I'm just a jar of clay. I want this for us badly. It doesn't mean that we won't have gifted people ministering to you. It doesn't mean that we won't have leaders. It doesn't mean that we won't see certain faces more than others. It means that we will do it in a way that takes a bat and beats the pyramid down to the ground. And we will do it in a way that takes the big sign and unplugs the electricity. And we will do it in a way that if anyone asks us, hey, who's the engine at Seven Mile Road? Who's like the people that make that place run? All of you will immediately go. What kind of question is that? And then say, here's how Seven Mile Road is built. It's Jesus, and it's just a bunch of jars of clay. There's joy in that place, safety in that place of humility. I have pages of notes on how we go do that, but would you just hear this big idea, and as I pray, be thinking on it, be repenting of any vanity in your heart, and asking Jesus to keep this place low together. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't deny that you have gifted your church with apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And some of us will be more prominent in the life of this family, and that is for the good of everyone. We know that's true. But we are asking you today if you would please come and work in such a way that there would never be a tier or a level, not even a second floor, no less a pyramid in the life of this church. But that each of us would think more of the person next to us. And that the great passion of our lives would be, how can I be a super useful clay pot? And when Jesus is done with me, he can replace me in a minute. But I will have had the pleasure and the privilege of leading others to the glory of God in the face of Christ, where there is true life. Change our hearts if we care about how big this place is. Change our hearts if we care about how prominent we are within it. Cause us to only seek the fame of Christ, the name above all the names. I pray that you'd come and do that work because that would be a miracle. And we want to see it happen in our church. Hear and answer, I pray. Amen.